It's Herb Alpert and the Team on the Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli, and this is Fangraphs Audio. As he is on most Mondays, my guest on this Monday is our managing editor, Dave Cameron. And as he does on most of those Mondays, in this episode of Fangraphs Audio, Dave Cameron offers entirely learned baseball analysis. Among the topics discussed on this edition of the podcast, we begin by looking at what could alternately be called the Prince Fielder situation, the Miguel Cabrera situation, or if you're in a specific sort of mood, the Delman Young situation. Why, with those three players, do the Detroit Tigers still claim they don't have a designated hitter? Dave Cameron addresses that question. We also look at Roy Oswalt. Last week, Cameron suggested that the trade of Marco Scudero to the Colorado Rockies would clear some payroll space so that the Red Sox might be able to sign the right-hander Oswalt. However, Oswalt appears very interested in joining either the St. Louis Cardinals or the Texas Rangers. We examine why and how that might happen. We look briefly at the Baltimore Orioles for reasons unknown, at the sightings of Jeff Francis and Brad Lidge, two pitchers who likely have something to offer their teams, signed for approximately a combined $2 million. And I asked Dave what one might look for if he were looking for the next Michael Pineda. That's only the introduction, though. The podcast is full of 30 minutes of excellence. And if you can believe it, it begins right now. absurd thing that I'm hearing with regard to the Cabrera situation, or I should say the fielder signing, which is creating a Cabrera situation because a lot of suggestion that Miguel Cabrera will play third base. Yeah, they basically said that. Right. Is that now, is that now the Tigers still um, are working under the assumption that they don't have a designated hitter when in fact they have three designated hitters? Right. Is that going to continue to be the case? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that they're going to sign uh, some veteran from the pile of Vladimir Guerrero, Hideki Matsui, Johnny Damon, uh, someone in that ilk who will fill in as like their uh, DH slash outfield depth guy um, to start the season. Uh, I don't think the Miguel Cabrera experiment at third base is going to last a really long time. I'm like, I think they might give it a couple of months, and then when, you know, Doug Fister and Rick Porcello have ERAs of like seven, they'll say, hey, maybe we need better defense, and they'll make a switch. Right. Yeah, and then, I mean, Fielder is also to the degree that we can that we can measure first base defense, he has not been good, and then additionally, yeah. there's a chance that um there are things. I mean, it's we, we don't include. I don't believe we include scoops in our first base fielding defense, do we? No, but Mitchell Lickman's done some research on it and shown that there's just not much variance there. It's a couple runs a year from good to bad. Okay, but I also sense that there are other things. I don't. I don't necessarily know what they would be, but maybe saved errors, essentially um, errors that yeah, are. Yeah, but those, those are kind of sort of counted. I mean, like. Uh, uh, not exactly in UZR, but if you look at a team's overall defensive efficiency, you can kind of uh, see that good defensive first basemen don't generally uh, correlate with that many fewer errors for the rest of their infielders. This is something that I think uh, Chris Dial studied a while ago when he was like campaigning for the greatness of John Olerud and was like convinced that uh, Olerud saved all you know Ray Ordonez from 20 years a year. And then when they started looking at it, I think they might have found some evidence that uh, perhaps Olerud was so good um, at 
at providing a target or doing whatever it is that he could do to help reduce errors. Maybe there's some value there, but for most guys, uh, there's not much of an effect. Actually, I would like to see Chris Dial say that out loud, mostly because I like seeing Chris Dial talk about anything. Well, I don't think Chris Dial talks. He just yells. <laughs> yeah, uh, he is. A, we got we got a chance to meet him at the. Uh, it was my first time meeting him at the Saber Conference in Long Beach, uh, and he's a, yeah. he's very entertaining. And he's a, he's an uh, energetic man. He is. Yes, and he's very assertive. Um, but you guys, he is a big fan of his own opinions, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So okay. So that's actually that's great then. Um, so so perhaps there's less mystery to uh, first base fielding, or less, um, or more is accounted for than than I was assuming. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we have first base defense figured out, or any positions defense completely figured out. But I don't think that there's much controversy in the statement that Prince Fielder is a lousy defensive first baseman. He's going to cost the Tigers a bunch of runs there. Right. And then, of course, there's Delman Young, uh, whom we addressed last week. We actually discussed, uh, to some degree, the, the Tigers' outfield. Delman Young is both a poor outfield outfielder and probably, at best, a league average hitter, right? Well, he could be a little bit above average. I mean, he's still like 25, 26, and he has shown some power and in years where he hits for power and makes contact. He could be like a you know 110 WRC plus kind of guy. I don't think his ceiling is league average player. That's kind of what he's been throughout most of his career, but there's still some untapped potential there. But, I mean, the ceiling's not that much above league average hitter. He's, he's not a great hitter for sure. Now, we've generally seen that, especially in a player's uh, the first year of his transition to, to designated hitter, that there's a decline. Is that true? Yeah, and it's not even just the first year. Hitters uh, perform worse at DH than they do when they're playing the field. Uh, the working theory is that it's just hard to sit around for an hour and then go up and hit. Uh, we also see this effect with pinch hitters, um, that when pinch hitters hit, they perform worse than they do than when they're playing uh, as starters. Um, and this is even accounting for the fact that DHs are likely older and you know more likely to be DHing because they're injured. I mean, even if you account for all that, uh, you still find that players perform uh, significantly worse when they're not playing the field. Um, so, you know, whoever moves to DH uh, can be expected to have some kind of drop-off. Right, but my, my point was that uh, maybe Delman Young, because he's not usually playing the field when he is playing the field, maybe the, dro- <laughs> the drop-off would not be as significant. Yeah, I mean, there could be something to the fact that, uh, you know, space cadets who aren't really paying attention when they're playing defense anyway uh, are already kind of taking an hour off in between at best, uh, but that might be a hard thing to quantify. I wonder, do you think there's any sense, uh, anecdotally I've heard that um, someone might take their errors with them to their plate appearances? Uh, yep. Young is responsible for errors both of the physical and mental variety. I mean, is there any substance to that statement that a player who's like maybe being really pressed at a defensive position um, that that actually could affect offense? You know, I don't know if there's anything to the mental side. I'm not a psychologist, so I can't really speak to that. I do think there is something to the effect of uh, if you're a bad defender at a position, it can harm your offense, but I think it's mostly a practice thing. So, like, uh, we see this with catchers who are bad defensive catchers, and they spend a lot of time working on their defense behind the plate, uh, and then it, it causes their offense to suffer as well. When they finally just give up on catching, uh, they move out from behind the plate and do a lot better. Um, you know, I think there's something to be said for just reducing the amount of time that a player has to spend preparing to 
be an adequate defensive player in a challenging position, that is time they can then spend watching video of pitchers or, uh, you know, hit, hitting the cages. I mean, there's just so many finite hours in the day where if we're allocating a significant portion of them to make a guy improve his defense from awful to mediocre, uh, if he can even do that, it might be better served in some cases of just moving into a less defensive, a less challenging defensive position and telling him to focus on hitting the crap out of the baseball. Okay. Now, um, another another player about whom we spoke last week was Roy Oswald. We mostly discussed him in the context of the Boston Red Sox trade of Marco Scudero to the Rockies for Clay Mortensen, which I mean, which is uh, which was a pretty conspicuous uh, conspicuous salary dump. Um, with you suggested a view, a view to signing Roy Oswald, or uh, I, you know, if not Oswald, then then maybe Edwin Jackson. Uh, in the meantime, I believe they've signed Cody Ross, which is not the answer, probably, and he'll probably end up, I'm assuming, in some sort of platoon with uh, Ryan Sweeney or Ryan Kalish when he comes back. Right. Um, and maybe we'll ultimately replace Darnell McDonald. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, I think Ross will probably serve as a 350 to 450-bat guy. Uh, he'll play a lot more early in the season, especially if Crawford's not ready to start the season. Um, and then, you know, the, as the season goes on, they'll probably hope Kalish can come back or Sweeney can, uh, you know, remind them that he can hit occasionally. And uh, Ross would be, a, you know, a platoon player against lefties at that point, um, an extra outfield depth in case someone gets hurt. Right. Now, it, it appears, however, at least uh, the reports that I was seeing uh, Monday morning, that the two favorites for signing Oswald at this point are the Cardinals uh, and Rangers. What happened to the Red Sox? I mean, first of all, is that the report that you're seeing? Second of all, what happened to the Red Sox? Well, it sounds like Oswald is uh, pretty dead set on geographic restrictions. So he told he turned down $10 million from the Tigers. He told the Indians and Blue Jays, you know, don't even bother. Um, so there's been a bunch of teams in the market for services that he just doesn't want to pitch for, and it sounds like the Red Sox might be one of those teams, not because they're not good or because he doesn't want to pitch in the American League or something, but that he wants to be close to a farm in Missouri that he owns or wants to pitch in Texas, which is where he's pitched his entire career. Uh, so the Cardinals obviously uh, fit the bill for the close proximity to Missouri, uh, and the Rangers are in Texas. So seems like those are the two teams he's decided that he wants to pitch for. The problem is that neither of them really have an open rotation spot for him. In fact, the Rangers have six starters for five spots right now. Uh, he would be the seventh, uh, and then they'd have a real log jam and probably have to make a trade of some sort. The Cardinals could potentially open up a spot for him by just moving Jake Westbrook or Kyle Loesch to the bullpen, um, but apparently they don't have enough money to make as well the kind of offer he's looking for. So they're trying to dump Kyle McClellan in order to free up some salary to give as well a little more money. Now, I guess actually that, uh, and I spent entirely too much time uh, in this morning's edition of Offseason Notes discussing Kyle McClellan. But uh, looking over his resume, um, he actually, he strikes me as the sort of starter that you would like. Yeah, I mean, he's a strike-throwing ground ball guy, and I think those guys are generally undervalued. Um, and I think he's a guy who's shown he can be a little bit more than just a situational reliever um, and potentially can move into the rotation. I mean, the Cardinals have tried him as a starter, and it hasn't had overwhelmingly positive results, but I wouldn't totally give up on it yet. And if he does get traded to Baltimore, which is uh, rumored to be a possibility, the Orioles have, you know, zero major league starting pitchers. <laughs> or, you know, it's a little unfair to Jeremy Guthrie, but they, their rotation's not great. So McClellan, I think if he got shipped to Baltimore, could potentially turn into a, a decent number five starter. 
You like uh, generally what what the Orioles or you know Dan Duquette since he's been there um, have been doing this off season. It seems like they're looking. I mean, they, uh, Duquette has signed at least uh, two Japanese pitchers. Um, I believe Wada and then another one. Chen, yeah. Right, Chen. Uh, he's he's made a Rule Five pick in Ryan Flaherty, who does not necessarily promise to be a star, but. Uh, had you know there could theoretically be something there. Uh, he signed Matt Antonelli to a major league contract, which maybe is slight overreach. But Antonelli, um, you know, has pedigree and, and had a decent season last year. And has been on the Fangraphs po- uh, podcast, which is why you like him. I, right. Well, I liked him and then invited him because he actually I I do think that uh, he's rather thoughtful. And I don't know necessarily if thoughtfulness uh, translates to you know. Baseballing success, but it's interesting. Brian, Brian Bannister suggests that it does not. Right, but there's some other players uh, who are a little more introspective and have had success in doing so. In uh, you know, in that. Right, way. but they they generally have talent. Right, but Antonelli was a first round draft pick. Maybe Bannister was too, actually. Uh, but it, but first yeah. round college first round college hitters are good players. Generally speaking, uh, sometimes, and, and and some guys just shouldn't have been taken in the first round, like Matt Antonelli. Hey, whoa, whoa, hey, back off, friend. We're gonna have to, we're gonna have to have fisticuffs over this. But any case, generally speaking, the Orioles' plan obviously has been to uh, look for deals. I mean, Duquette is kind of Kevin Towersing the hell out of the off season. That's a really generous description of what he's doing. I mean, I think, like, uh, Towers has a long history of building up really good bullpens on the cheap. Uh, and, you know, he did a nice job. Well, I'll put it this way. The, the Diamondbacks had really good results after he took over last year, and they improved by 29 wins, uh, despite the fact that Towers spent all of last season signing mediocre uh, clubhouse chemistry guys to two-year contracts. It apparently worked, or something worked. Um, so I'm not going to, you know, say that Towers did a bad job last year in Arizona. But I, I don't know that if uh, I, I don't know that signing a couple of uh, Asian lefties with mediocre stuff, um, or in Chen's case, okay stuff and mediocre results, uh, plus then you know doing roster filler really counts as much of an off season. Is it interesting at least? Uh, if you're into Japanese pitchers, then sure. What is the upside for the Orioles? I mean, are they in a worse situa- situation than? Basically every other team at this point. I think they're in a worse situation than every other franchise in sports. I mean, they're like the Hofstra of uh, <laughs> Major League Baseball. Like, I mean, they're just not going to win, and they're not going to win anytime soon. And they, you know, barring some kind of structural change in baseball, like you know, five wild cards or something, I just can't see them making the playoffs anytime soon. Okay. Well, how about this? An- another player about whom. Um, you know uh, that you're probably more attached to than than most other uh, analysts or fans is Jeff Francis, a player yeah. who over the last two years has been worth I think like f- maybe five wins, something close to that, maybe four. Yeah. And in in the same, uh, did we talk about Francis last week? And, you know what? Actually, I don't, I don't. Who cares? Let's talk about him again. But as I, I don't think we did. As someone has mentioned in the same off season that Aaron Harang uh, signed a guaranteed what one or two year deal. Two-year deal for twelve million dollars. Right, Jeff Francis, who's been legitimately average, which is uh, which is good um, over the last I, two years. Yeah. 
Uh, I, I think some people might dispute the legitimately. So we've got him as like an average-ish pitcher based on his uh, walk rate, strikeout rate, and ground ball rate, but he's consistently run high Babbitts and uh, been lousy at preventing runs. So his ERAs have been a lot worse than his underlying peripherals. And, uh, you know, we like those pitchers more than Major League Baseball does. Okay. But were you surprised nonetheless to see him only get a minor league deal or uh, maybe – Alternatively, do you think that the Reds did a good thing by signing him to a minor league deal? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think in both cases, um, you know, Francis is clearly better than some major league starters. I think there's a good argument to me that he's better than Bronson Arroyo, who the Reds gave $36 million to last winter. And uh, now Francis is coming to camp with a chance to beat out Arroyo for a spot in the rotation. I think they'll say that he's competing with Mike Leake and some of the other young kids, but uh, the worst starter on that Reds team is Arroyo, and if anyone's going to lose their job, it should be him. So, um, you know, I think Francis is clearly good enough to start for, you know, probably most of the teams in Major League Baseball. Um, and, I, you know, the fact that he had to settle for a minor league deal is kind of uh, indicative of guys who get stuck in this January um you know, merry-go-round where it's, I better sign or I'm not going to have a chance to have a job. Um, but I do think it's, you know, a little humorous that Francis, if you, if you look at his uh, platoon splits, even while he hasn't been uh, an amazing pitcher over the last couple of years in terms of results, he's been deadly against left-handers. His problems have all come against right-handers. So worst-case scenario, Jeff Francis is a really good bullpen piece, and teams pay 3 or $4 million for good left-handed specialists every year. So uh, when you have a, a guy who at worst is a good left-handed reliever and could be a league-average starter, the fact that he had to settle for a minority contract is kind of hilarious. Yeah, it didn't... Uh... I mean, didn't the offseason begin with the Giants giving out, like, a combined $10 million to two relievers? Yeah, and, you know, I think uh, it seems like, for whatever reason, teams don't learn the lesson that spending money on relievers at the beginning of the offseason is a really bad idea. I mean, like, if you look back at all the reliever contracts over the past few years signed in uh, November or December, you see, like, these monstrous contracts for guys who are marginally or no better than the guys who signed in January on one-year no-money deals. Uh, you know, on Twitter I put out last week after the Brad Lidge signing, Joe Nathan got two years and $14 million. Uh, Brad Lidge got one year and $1 million. Uh, Both of them are, you know, older pitchers coming off of significant arm problems. Uh, you know, both of them had pretty good strikeout rates that suggest they could have something left. Lidge's walk rates were awful, but his ERA was still good. Uh, you know, so I guess Nathan got $13 million extra because he still throws hard, and uh, maybe that's more valuable than Lidge throwing a slider that hitters can't hit. But, like, the idea that you'd want to pay Joe Nathan $13 million more than Brad Lidge is kind of hilarious. Well, let's talk about Lidge briefly. Uh, I, I mean, his biggest problem has been health, although, of course, Joe Nathan's not exempt from that um, description either. But when he did pitch last year, uh, while not sort of vintage Brad Lidge, and he hasn't been that for a number of years, he still struck out a quarter of the batters he faced. The control, I mean, he's still going to walk guys. I don't know if it's a if it's a difference between command and control, I mean, because he's throwing a slider that doesn't doesn't spend a lot of time in the strike zone, which, you know, that's how he survives. But on a, you know, a per inning basis, he still appears to be above average as a, uh, as a relief pitcher, and the Nationals got him for $1 million. Yeah, I mean, I think teams are scared of the pitch mix. So, like, his fastball velocity is down to about 89 when it used to be 93, 94. Uh, and I think last year he threw something like 70% sliders. I mean, he was just a, you know, a, 
uh, very heavy breaking ball guy, and teams don't generally love guys who pitch off their breaking ball um, for health reasons and just for unpredictability reasons, uh, or I guess in this case predictability reasons. It's not very hard to go up to bat and know what Brad Lidge is going to throw you. Um, so in general, I think we see the guys who pitch off their fastball get more money than guys who pitch off their off-speed stuff, uh, even good breaking balls that can make guys swing and miss. Um, but I do think that, you know, the, if Brad Lidge would have uh, told teams in November that he was signed for a million dollars, there would have been teams lining up to take that chance. And uh, The only reason he had to settle for so little is that, you know, he waited till the end of the offseason when most of the jobs were already taken. Hey, uh, to change gears uh, just a little bit here. Um, I was uh, I was thinking of doing a post on um, that I didn't realize it until I was sort of um, halfway through researching it was essentially looking for the next Michael Pineda because we had a conversation about Pineda I guess probably two weeks ago now and I was really struck by something which was the idea of a pitcher who has um, who has a, who has um, excellent velocity on his fastball and commands it well that was the thing that Pineda became right. Right. Yep. Um, he he didn't necessarily start out like that, but for whatever reason, uh, he had a couple miles per hour to his fastball, and he always had um, excellent command of it. And I don't think that you know um, he had walk rates above maybe six, you know, five or six percent his last couple of years in the minors. Right. Yeah. He's always been a guy through strikes, and then once he started throwing hard or really hard in his case, then it really clicked. Right. And so I was sort of thinking, uh, you know, just using the uh, you know minor league leaderboards. Uh, to my advantage, of maybe going through and like and finding some pitchers who might meet that description or maybe have met that description in the past um, to kind of combine you know um, scouting uh, scouting reports with uh, you know essentially like le- leaderboard custom searches and I was curious as to what, what like if you were going to look for the next Michael Pineda you know beyond uh, fastball velocity and walk rates I mean I guess you'd want to set ages and levels. Uh, I still don't think age level is all that important for pitchers. I think, like, uh, you know, pitchers develop at different, very different rates, and uh, by and large, what determines whether a pitcher will be successful is what he throws. And, you know, age has something to do with stuff, as we know that velocity declines over time. So, you know, if you're a guy who's 27 or 28 in the minors, uh, odds are st- stuff is going to be in decline sooner than if he's 22 or 23, but uh, age level isn't nearly as important as it is for pitchers as for hitters. So I'm curious about a pitcher like, for example, uh, Henderson Alvarez. Yeah. Um, I don't know necessarily what his uh, reputation was um, among um, scouts, or you know, for example, uh, to, what, to what degree he appeared on top 100 lists uh, before before last year, or if he, if he did last year. But he is a pitcher who throws uh, mid 90s and has done a good job at not not walking players. And, uh, you know, he's only 21 last year. Um, And so usually I would assume that a player who fits that description um, would uh, would do well in the majors, uh, and yet he had never appeared on a top 100 list um, before his debut last year. Yeah, I think uh, with Alvarez, and I think what you're going to find is if you just sort pitchers by low walk rates, uh, you're going to end up with a lot of pitchers who either have mediocre fastball velocities, uh, probably predominantly guys who don't throw very hard, or you're going to find pitchers who don't have much of an out pitch. Like they're, they just don't have an advanced breaking ball. Um, you could throw Hector Nwesi into this conversation. He's a guy who's, uh, you know, averaged 93 out of the bullpen last year. There's reports he's been up to 97, 98 down in uh, winter ball this year. 
Um, he's top 96 in the minors, always thrown a lot of strikes, but neither his slider or his curveball or all that good. And, uh, there aren't putaway pitches. So the scouts project those type of guys as fourth fifth starters because they're going to be, um, strike throwers who don't get a ton of strikeouts and they're not going to be able to, uh, knock pitchers, knock guys out with, you know, some kind of dominant pitch when it's two strikes and it's going to get foul after foul after foul and then finally a ball in play. And um, to a lesser extent, I think uh, Daniel Hudson, this was the knock on him coming up through the minors. He threw pretty hard and he had good command, but he wasn't necessarily a, a guy who had a real knockout uh, breaking ball. And so he was considered, a, you know, I think he ranked at like 65 on the top 100 of last year in the minors. And he was considered the White Sox best prospect, but it was a... Um, not a great farm system. So, right, yeah. Well, White, uh, White Sox best prospect doesn't hasn't meant much for a couple of years now. Right, exactly, yeah. So uh, I think Hudson's another example of this kind of pitcher type and how they can, uh, you know, maybe be a little better than people expect. Um, I do think that this, uh, you know, command of a good fastball, uh, especially if you have a changeup as well to get left-handers out uh, or to get opposite-handed hitters out and if you're a lefty, um, is a is a skill set that maybe is a little bit undervalued, but I do think you need some kind of out pitch in order to be a high quality starter in the major league level. Pineda's slider is definitely an out pitch, so that puts him at a level above guys like Daniel Hudson or uh, you know Hector Noisy or some of these other strike throwers. Um, if you have that you know nasty breaking ball that can get swings and misses, and you have the fastball command, uh, then you're then you've got a chance to be an elite pitcher. Now, what's the difference between between those guys we just mentioned and a pic- and a pitcher like David Hernandez, who had crazy strikeout numbers in the minors as a starter, and had a decent velocity on his fastball, but um, has only managed to be, uh, you know, I mean, a pretty good um, high leverage sort of reliever in the majors, but has a, uh, had terrible time starting. Yeah, Hernandez doesn't have anywhere near the command that those guys have had okay. uh, or has ha- had. And uh, also his stuff wasn't, you know, his velocity wasn't nearly as good in the minors. Like when he moved to the bullpen, he got a significant velocity bump. Uh, in the minors, he was more 88 to 92. So it was uh, high strikeout rates with marginal stuff and marginal command. Um, so so it's mostly just his, it's mostly just his, his, he has a pretty good slider, and that's what did it. Yeah, I mean, or there's deception in his delivery. I mean, you know, anytime you get a guy who doesn't throw all that hard, um, who gets really high strikeout rates in the minors, you're always going to hear, oh, maybe he hides the ball well, or, you know, there's uh, speculation as to what he's doing and whether it will transfer over to the, the majors. Hernandez was a guy who didn't have great command and didn't have uh, overwhelming stuff, and so that's why he was never really seen as a top prospect and probably wouldn't make it as a major league starter. Okay. Uh, before we go, Cameron, do you need any uh, – I mean, do you need – do you have any questions for me? Anything um, you need help with? Any analysis you need of any players that I, you know, I could help you with? <laughs> uh, how was Swim Fest? Um, well, so it was interesting. It was definitely interesting. I'm glad I went. Um, I cannot believe that there are that many people who really like the Twins. That is a man. Well, what, what else is there to really like in Minnesota? Oh uh, well, I think I know that you're joking. However, I think that uh, from what I understand, um, Minneapolis, the, the Twin Cities area, is actually really nice, um, and is really nice in terms of quality of life. Um, the weather is obviously conspicuously poor. Uh, however, <laughs> in the summer, the only the only time I've ever been in Minneapolis was in the summer, and it was beautiful. And which is, uh, you know, it's one of the nicest places on earth, apparently, uh, in like June and July, and maybe even early August. Uh, 
But I guess if you're other sports teams or the Vikings and the Timberwolves, then maybe the Twins just don't look so bad by comparison. It's strange. It's just a, and, and maybe it's just because, uh, you know, I was never a Twins fan and I didn't grow up a Twins fan, obviously. But it is weird when you see people entirely devoted to a team that, with which you have very little connection, and especially because, like, um, you know, you're walking around there and it's just there's tons of memorabilia and. Uh, you know, c- celebrating Kevin Tappany. I mean, I was with there with the common man and Bill from the Platoon Advantage, and they were really stoked about getting Kevin Tappany's autograph. Well, to be uh, quite frank, those guys are weird. <laughs> well, there's that. Yeah, there's yeah. that. There's that as well. Um, one thing that I did run into, and I was just working on a knockout post about it, was because um, there's a lot of uh, baseball cards being sold there. And uh, I, I don't know what to, to what degree you ever collected cards, but I was reminded of the fact that um, at the end of 2009, Major League Baseball signed an exclusive agreement with Topps, or maybe you phrase it, Topps signed an exclusive agreement with Major League Baseball to distribute um, to distribute baseball cards. But um, in defiance of that, Upper Deck released uh, the Series One of their 2010 set, just as if not, that hadn't been decided. Oh wow! So so they never released the series two because they were quickly like ordered to cease and desist uh, distribution. But they did. They were allowed to continue releasing uh, series one. So they so they released the entire uh, series one of their 2010 set, but not a series two or any of the sort of um, you know auxiliary sets that that uh, seem popular. Um, which is which is really interesting to me. I don't, did you ever collect cards? Yeah, when I was young, I collected cards, yeah. Right, and actually what's interesting about that is even today, uh, um, card collectors, you know, or, you know, cards, uh, you know, card shops, um, yeah. but like at Twins Fest, you could still buy, you could buy entire sets of like 87 through 91 of anything except for Upper Deck uh, for like $5. So like 88 wow. Donruss, if you want that, it's only $5. <laughs> um, and I was asking one dealer... Um, you know, like relative to 1987, for example, or 88, like how many sets, like complete sets, does Topps release now, like of their 2011 set? And he said it's one percent. Wow. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. But yeah, you could just, I mean, even at five dollars, those sets are probably overpriced at this point. Yeah, I guess the the baseball card industry in the 80s and 90s was kind of like the great economic example of oversaturation. It was, yeah. Uh, luckily, it did not have the uh, it didn't have the the consequences that like the real estate market did on, on right. our economy. Um, right. But maybe real estate investors and um, I guess uh, uh, investors, yeah, investors generally uh, could have learned from that if they had done that. I guess if they had collected more cards in the 80s and 90s, they would have known. Yeah, you know who's really hurting? A real estate speculator who also collects baseball cards. Yeah, that guy's having a hard time. If, yeah, hey, listen, if any of our listeners meet that description, sorry, dog. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Um, let's let's end this uh, version of uh, this edition of the podcast. But uh, thank you, uh, Dave Cameron, for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. All right, that's Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sassouli, and this is another edition of Fangraphs Audio. Audio.